Now, one of the great errors that the church has often made when it comes to talking about sex or sex outside of marriage is to only put a really negative spin on it. Don't have sex outside of marriage, or you might get pregnant, or you might catch an STD, or you might fall prey to um, revenge porn. Warning, warning, you'll sear your conscience. Um, You'll damage your brain neurologically. You'll feel guilty, you'll feel dirty. Don't do it. Now, um, there's no doubt that there are places in the Bible um, which do speak in those terms of very serious, very negative consequences of having sex outside of marriage. But that is not the focus of the Song of Songs at all, which is a message of positive reinforcement, celebrates the many blessings of waiting for sexual intimacy within marriage. The best things come to those who wait. And this section, chapter 2, verses 8 to 17, this next poem, it's why it's been described as, as one of the most beautiful expressions of love in the spring contained anywhere in Scripture. Positive message, positive reinforcement, a poem to move us, excite us, show us. Not, don't do it because it's so terrible outside, but the wonder and beauty and freedom of sexual intimacy within marriage. So come with me to the the passage now. I will try my best not to overanalyze the poetry and so deaden something which is by nature alive and living and beautiful. But I do want to go through it verse by verse. And then the second half, I'll draw out some practical implications for all of us, wherever you're coming from today. Not just about human love, but ultimately and most importantly, the love between Christ and the church. So that's where we're going to go. Come with me to the beginning of the poem. It begins in verses 8 to 13 with an invitation to intimacy. From the man, but through the ears and the eyes and the words of the woman. So she is the one speaking here. Listen, my beloved. She can hear him. He's on the way. She's excited. Look, here he comes. He's in sight now. She can't wait. Leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. He's not dangerous like a lion. He's not timid like a mouse. He is like a gazelle, energetic, graceful, curious, sexually eager, especially in the spring. Look. There he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. He's trying to see her. And then in verses 10 to 13, their eyes meet and he speaks. My beloved spoke and said to me, notice past tense, she's reminiscing. This is a memory. Arise, my my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Invitation to be, and we get the same thing again in verse 13. It tops and tails this wonderful little speech. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Now, the question is, what is this an invitation to? In chapter 4, verse 8, the same language is used, come with me, which every commentator agrees. There is an invitation to sexual intimacy, and there's no reason for reading it any differently here. 
But here in chapter two, we get given the reason why. The time is right. See verse 11, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming in vines spread their fragrance. It is springtime. The season of love, as the poet Tennyson once put it, when a young man's fancy likely turns to thoughts of love. Everything is bursting into bloom. Every sensation of creation is crying out, the time is right. The sight of the daffodils, the sound of the birds, the scent of the lavender, the taste of ripening figs. Now is the time for lovemaking. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. This is how the poem starts. And then in verses 14 to 15, we get this wooing to intimacy. As now the man speaks for himself. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside. The dove is a timid creature. The dove is not strong. It does not have claws or teeth to defend itself, protect itself. So what's it do? It ends up hiding in very difficult to get places. Why is the man describing his wife like this? Is she playing hard to get? She had a tough day at work? Is she not particularly in the mood? Is she just naturally a bit shy? We don't know, we're not told. Instead, we hear the man's tender words of wooing. Show me your face. Literally in the Hebrew, your form, I want to see all of you. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face and form is lovely. I want to see you, I want to hear you, I want to be with you. He's besotted with her. And then he says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards are vineyards that are in bloom. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, the woman has already used the image of a vineyard for her body and we know that she literally used to work in a vineyard so she knows the mess and ruin that foxes can cause if they get in and eat the grapes and dig up around the vines and expose the roots and so what the man is doing here it seems is using this imagery to say beware of anything that may spoil our lovemaking our vineyards are in bloom the time is right arise come with me this wooing to sexual intimacy. Then, in verses 6 to 17, she accepts. My beloved is mine, and I am his. And do you notice the symmetry here? It doesn't say, well, look, I belong to him, and so I better do whatever he wants. No, she starts by saying, my beloved is mine. He belongs to, to her. There's no male dominance here. There is no chauvinism here. This is mutual belonging. Their relationship completely symmetrical. It's beautiful. My beloved is mine and I am his. And it's because of this security in their relationship and their absolute commitment to each other in marriage that it, it draws her to him. 
removes any remaining hindrances, whatever they are, for being in the hiding place and leads to a deeper physical intimacy together. End of verse 16. He browses among the lilies, which I will leave to your poetic imagination, but if you flick forward later to chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, you'll get more detail as to what's going on here. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, turn towards me. She's now inviting him and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. Do you see this invitation to the beauty and freedom and wonder of sexual intimacy between a man and a woman in the lifelong commitment of marriage? I want us to pause here and think for a moment. When was the last time that you heard or saw a positive message and a positive reinforcement of sex within marriage, be it inside the church or outside the church. I mean, you watch the films, you read the magazines, the latest Netflix TV series, and it seems that it's perfectly normal to be having sex before marriage, that that is the ideal, that before people have really got to know each other, their clothes are coming off, and there they go. And if you were to, like, I don't know, with a friend and colleague, you know, watching it, and you turn to them, but they're not married. They would look at you and think you were crazy, and they'd just laugh at you out loud. And the very few times that we do get cultural references to sort of sex within marriage, is it often because there's, like, boredom in the marriage, and the marriage bed has become cold, and, and drastic measures need to be taken to spruce things up, or they look elsewhere. Where is the positive reinforcement. It is a terrible mistake whenever the church only speaks of sex in a negative way. Don't do it outside marriage. It's wrong. I mean, yeah, that's true. But we need the positive reinforcement too. Wait for marriage. It's wonderful. Sexual intimacy in the right context of a committed relationship, marriage, There is nothing else like it. And so, those of you here who are single, do you remember how we ended last week in verse 7? With this strong admonition to the daughters of Jerusalem. This book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, is primarily addressed to single people. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, by the gazelles and by the doers of the, sorry, the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, by the way, if you're wondering here, why does the woman sort of swear by the animals? That sounds a little bit strange. Um, the commentators uh, will tell you that the, the Hebrew word for gazelle here is that sounds in the Hebrew identical to the word hosts in the title Lord of Hosts. And those of the field sounds very similar to God Almighty. And so you know in the law court, in a, in a law film, you know, people will put their hand on the Bible and say, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That is the strength of language being used here. Wait. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I plead with you. Do not arouse love until the right time, the right person, your spouse in marriage. You will not be disappointed 
Wait for that mutual belonging. Wait for that lifelong commitment. As wonderful as springtime is, we're in it now. The multi-sensory experience we saw before, so it can be. If you time it right and wait for sexual intimacy within marriage. I know you have to be careful with statistics because of small sample sizes relative to the population, uh, potential biases in collating, assessing the results. But Oxford statistician David Spiegelhalter, he has written a pretty authoritative guide, so I'm told, about people's sex lives in this country today. And the data reveals that the promises of the sexual revolution back from the 1960s but carrying on through to today of free love and better sex has just not come true. And he rather jokingly concludes, at this rate of decline, a simple but extremely naive extrapolation would predict that by 2040, the average person will not be having sex at all. So obviously it's on a decline. I rather suspect this will not be the case, but this still leaves the crucial question, why is there less sex going on? Conversely, when Maggie Gallagher and Linda Waite, the authors of The Case for Marriage, analyzed the numbers from the National Sex Survey in the US, they discovered that those who had the most enjoyable sex were those who were religiously conservative, either Jews, Catholics, or Protestants, those who were in committed marriages, and those who felt loved and cherished by their spouses. Friends, you can trust what the Bible says here. It is God's wisdom. It is from our creator. He made us. All of us, including our sexual desires. He knows how it works. He's designed us. He's telling us. Trust him. He really does know best for us. Those of us here who are married... Well, do you hear this ongoing invitation to sexual intimacy within marriage? Wives, you might not describe your husband as a gazelle, but are you still listening out for his voice and eager to see him and excited by his presence and my beloved is mine and I am his? Husbands, you may be feeling pretty inadequate right now because you've never uttered such romantic words to your wife as this man does about springtime and love. But whatever words you have got, are you still inviting her to intimacy? Are you still wooing her to yourself? Whatever the little foxes are in your marriage, are you doing everything possible to catch them to protect your vineyards, to foster an ever-deepening intimacy and oneness. At this point, let me add a brief um, but vital word about marital abuse, which has come to light in the wider context of the recent abuse scandals in the church at large. There is a perceived wisdom uh, going around in certain parts of the conservative evangelical constituency, of which we would say we're a part, that says if a husband wants sex, then it is sort of the role of his wife to give it to him, regardless really of how she feels about it. 
And a Bible reference that's used to support this is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. But if you simply read on to the very next verse, verse 4, it says the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. In other words, the wife can say no. The wife can tell his body not to do things to her body if she doesn't want it. We just saw in verses 16 to 17 the mutual acceptance towards intimacy. So men, husbands, let me be as clear as I possibly can. No means no. By all means, invite her to intimacy. Woo her to intimacy. Accept that. Wait for her to accept it. Be like a gazelle. But don't ever be like a monster, demanding or forcing yourself upon her. So singles, married, a quick word now to parents. Don't panic when your younger children start discovering their private parts or when your teenage children start going through puberty and are overcome with all sorts of desires for intimacy and deeper connection with another person. It's so tempting to like, ah, look the other way, bury your head in the sand, be embarrassed about it. Simply back your child's hand away, don't do that. Or as a teenage friend of mine was once told by his teacher, stop fiddling or you will go blind. Parents, remember positive reinforcement. It can start really early. To your younger children, God made all of you, including your private parts. This is what they're called. This is what God designed them for, as well as telling them a negative and why not to do things. To your teenage children, the desire for intimacy you're now feeling, and it's so strong, it's, so, it's a natural thing. It's from God. And he wants you to share that desire for sexual intimacy with your spouse in marriage. It's not for now. It's when you're absolutely committed to another person, you to him, them to you, a precious gift, so guard it, my son, my daughter, wait, it will be worth it. As well as the other reasons of no, don't, this is the reason why. Positive and negative. And of course, you'll put it into your own words, you'll do it in your own ways, but let's be on the front foot with it. It's never too late to start. Finally, and most importantly of all, this poem here is an invitation to all of us to a deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ, who we've been seeing through this series is the true lover of ourselves and the true bridegroom of the church. I am well aware that some of you here are long-term single, some in the church family are widowed, some are divorced, some of you have same-sex attraction. Some of you are unsure about your sexuality. You are wondering how this all applies to you. I am well aware that some of you haven't waited for sexual intimacy within marriage. And even though some of you have waited, you've let the little foxes in. Through lust, through pornography, through fantasizing elsewhere. And both sets of you feel guilty. 
I am well aware that some of you have had your vineyard spoilt by others through no fault of your own. People who have abused you and you're now fearful of opening up your vineyard to anyone else. We are all struggling with how idealistic this poem is. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, there is nothing, there is nothing idealistic about him. This man in the Song of Songs, he can't leap across mountains or bound over the hills. It's poetry, it's metaphor. But Jesus Christ really did move heaven on earth so he could have relationship with us, such as his desire for intimacy with you. Jesus Christ was born a normal man with normal sexual desires. Desires for sexual intimacy he knew he would not be able to fulfill in an earthly marriage. And yet Jesus guarded his vineyard perfectly, never let a single little fox in, and did so not for any earthly bride, but for his heavenly bride, the church. Jesus Christ gave himself for his church. Jesus Christ died for all the church's unfaithfulness to him. Jesus promises to make his church holy, cleanse her, present her to him radiant without stain or spot or wrinkle or blemish. It does not matter how far you may have fallen sexually, and we all fall short. There is always forgiveness with Jesus Christ. There is always cleansing with Jesus Christ. There is always a fresh start with him. It might be that there is no legitimate outlet for your God-given desires for sexual intimacy in this life, but even those desires you still do powerfully feel are a reflection, be it ever so small, of just how intimately passionate God himself is towards you and being united to his church. I am the true vine, Jesus says. You are the branches, you in me and I in you. And even if your vineyard has been awfully damaged by others in this area of sexuality, can I say Jesus Christ, he is the gentlest saviour. He is the most tender and compassionate Lord. It might take a lot of counselling to really believe it, but his perfect love really does drive out all fear. Jesus Christ, he can repair the most broken of vineyards. Jesus can break the most enslaving of addictions. Jesus can cleanse the darkest stain. Jesus can inflame the coldest heart. Jesus can empower you to wait for marriage. So seek intimacy with him before anyone or anything else. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Ultimately, these are Jesus' words to us. Will you come? Will you accept? And if you have, will you guard your relationship with him? 
above all others. The famous missionary Hudson Taylor once described how numerous the little foxes are. He describes them as little compromises with the world, disobedience to the still, small voice in little things, little indulgences of the flesh to the neglect of duty, doing evil in little things that good may come, and the beauty and the fruitfulness of the vine are sacrificed. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, him, the lover of your soul, let's catch those foxes, let's seek a deeper intimacy with him. As a church, let's say these words, my beloved is mine and I am his. And as an old hymn put it, oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me, Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Well, let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for the Song of Songs and this invitation to intimacy that we see here. Yes, within a marriage relationship between husband and wife, but ultimately, and most importantly, between your son Jesus Christ and the church. It's an incredible thing that you love us like this. Please would you warm our hearts to that love. Please would we hear this invitation. And please would your spirit draw us closer to a deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ, we ask. For his name's sake, amen.